The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. In a paradoxical way, our democracies that provide equal political rights have ended up allowing very unequal economic outcomes to persist. And and that's just a trade-off that we have to get used to in some way, right? That that maybe this is the dark side of having property rights, but but we want those property rights. And we'll have to find ways of taxing people effectively if we want to squeeze it any further. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. I'm Michael Kovnat, your host here on the Next Big Idea Daily, and I hope you're having a great holiday. Maybe you're lounging on your yacht, sailing around the Caribbean, eating caviar off of crystal spoons. No? Then maybe your servants are bringing you martinis as you take a dip in your infinity pool. No? Huh. Well, maybe you missed the memo, the one that suggested that our market-driven, democratic land of opportunity was going to spread prosperity far and wide. Well, there's prosperity in this country, all right, but it turns out that it's concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. Some of us think this is a problem, but according to my guest, political scientist Ben Ansel, it's not one with an easy solution. In his new book, Why Politics Fails, Ben describes how we've gotten caught in what he calls the equality trap. The equality trap is that equal rights and equal outcomes undermine each other. America, the land of equal political freedoms, has also become far more unequal in economic outcomes over the past half century. In the 1970s, America's richest 1% of earners brought in 11% of national income. By 2014, that had doubled to 20%. And by contrast, the poorest 50% of Americans saw their share of income almost halve. How did America get this way? Why wasn't there a successful political backlash to skyrocketing inequality? No matter how wealthy the 1% are, it should be impossible for them to defeat the bottom 50% in a democratic election, and yet, politics in America seems to have failed. It has underpinned, rather than undercut, inequality. America has become caught in the equality trap. The equal freedoms Americans cherish have made it hard to clamp down on unequal outcomes. The wealthiest like the rest of us, have equal economic rights to choose how to spend their money, where to live and how to behave, and this makes it hard to tax them if we want to equalise outcomes. In fact, worldwide, rich people are often the biggest beneficiaries of democracy, because democracies are so much better at protecting their property rights and their rights to free speech than authoritarian countries. Being a billionaire in China or Russia is dangerous territory. You can find yourself expropriated, arrested, or, well, not alive anymore. The political power of the masses in democracies doesn't translate into despoiling the rich. Quite the opposite. Democracies protect, as well as tax, wealth. And this leaves us in a quandary. We cherish our equal rights, but they often go hand in hand with soaring inequality. This is a fascinating one. I mean, we all know the rich get richer, but I think you point out that in some cases, like in the United States, 
sort of like the expansion of the universe, it's not just growing, it's accelerating, right? That the, that the rich are getting richer at a faster clip. Uh, and now the top 1% own some extraordinary amount of the wealth in America. And you asked the question, why? Why has this happened? Why have we let this happen? Because you would think in a nominally democratic society where the vast majority of us are not super wealthy, we would have tools to to kind of constrain that obscene uh, income inequality. Why do you think that hasn't happened in America? You know, in democratic societies where we could despoil and expropriate the very wealthiest in society, we voluntarily choose not to do that because we value a set of equal freedoms that allow the rich to get that rich. And, you know, much of our taxes and public spending is really you know, doing a dance between um, the desire to make sure that we don't have enormous gaps and particularly that we don't have high levels of poverty, but on the other hand, not wanting to constrain people's economic and social and civic freedoms. And there, I think people acknowledge there are trade-offs between those two points. I mean, people speculate that there's something in the American character in particular where we sort of think, well, that could be me someday. You know, maybe I will somehow become Jeff Bezos through some miracle or some, you know, hard work or inspiration on my part. And I don't, I want to live in a country where I would be free to spend my money as I want to, as I see fit. And so therefore Jeff Bezos and his brethren should have that same freedom. Exactly. I mean, economists call this the possibility of upward mobility hypothesis, which is mm. a pretty, pretty clunky term. But it's the idea that people think, well, that could be me one day. And then, of course, other social scientists turn around and say, well, but they're, but they're not going to be or they're not all going to mm. be. Right. So it's irrational. But I think that's missing the point. I think if people value the set of equal freedoms we have that make upward mobility possible. It doesn't matter what the probability is that they themselves will get there, but rather right. that they value living in a society where that is possible. In other words, they value the equal processes, not just the possibility of getting rich. And I think this is why things like the, you, you remember, we are the 99% uh, mm -hmm. during, you know, in, in the post-Great Recession period, Occupy Wall Street. Uh, you, you know, those those are were popular and successful social movements that didn't accomplish a huge amount. They didn't right. accomplish a huge amount because there is not grand demand for taxing the one percent. And I think for the reasons I've gone over about people's views about fairness uh, and how people should be treated. You know, even as we can obviously find some wealthy people who maybe made their money in immoral ways, I don't think that's the average way that typical citizens think about it. Well, let's ask the question then, if we don't want to do it, is this kind of income inequality even a problem then? Maybe it's okay that that this small sliver of people own more and more of the wealth in the country. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard. You know, social scientists have thought a lot about whether income inequality destabilizes democracy. And basically, the jury is out on that question. And one of the reasons for that is something I talk about in, in the book, which is that in dictatorships that are unequal, they are actually more likely to become democracies than those dictatorships that were equal. And all countries were, dicta were dictatorships once, right? So the places sure. that became democracies early were places that went through the Industrial Revolution first and became highly unequal, right? So they're places like the United Kingdom. 
And so we have this, what you could call a kind of Charles Dickens paradox, that you have Oliver Twist being written, right? A book written about these, these enormous income inequalities in the United Kingdom, at the same time as Britain is passing the second and third reform acts, giving everybody the vote. And so it doesn't seem to me that historically there's this kind of clear negative relationship with inequality and democracy. And if anything, it might be the reverse. And that could be in part because as people get wealthier, they have something to protect that wealth. And you know who's really bad at protecting your wealth? Dictatorships. And you can see this right. in China right now, right? The people who in some ways are at most threat from Xi Jinping are the people whose wealth could be arbitrarily expropriated and who, right. you know, what, what they spend their time doing is figuring out ways to squirrel their money away into flats in London or in Dubai or in Vancouver to avoid that risk. So, you know, I think in, in, in a paradoxical way, our democracies that provide equal political rights have ended up allowing very unequal economic outcomes to persist. And, and that's just a trade-off that we have to get used to in some way, right? That, that, that maybe this is the dark side of having property rights, but, but we want those property rights. And we'll have to find ways of taxing people effectively if we want to squeeze it any further. Well, then let's talk about taxing. I mean, let, let's assume for the sake of argument that we do want to do something about this growing inequality. How can we get there? Yeah, so we can always try taxing, right? That that is that is always open to governments and it's often effective. The resources that we would probably want to tax are our wealth today. And, and you know, it's certainly the case that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren ran in the 2019 primaries the Democratic candidacy for president on wealth taxes that would apply if you had your wealth of around $10 million or more. And it would be a net tax you'd have to pay each year. You could implement that. The Swiss have had taxes like that. The French have had taxes like that. I think the challenge of a wealth tax is billionaires are really good at avoiding taxes, and they certainly can spend down their money to avoid the tax, either just by consuming it away, uh, or indeed by hiring accountants <laughs> to help them avoid the tax, or spending their money, you know, post citizens uh, united on uh, on political campaigns. Mm -hmm. We could also think about non-tax ways of, of getting at this, right? Because nobody likes taxing. And, you know, there are all kinds of great motifs about taxing that are hundreds of years old, but the most famous comes from the era of Louis XIV in France, which is that the art of taxation is extracting as many feathers from the goose with the minimum hissing possible, right? Mm -hmm. So we are all hissing geese. We don't like mm -hmm. being taxed. Um, the way that America had more equal outcomes in the 1950s and 60s was, yes, in part through taxation, but it was actually pre-taxation for the most part. There was a, a more compact income distribution in terms of people's market incomes, right, what they earned. And that was in part because labor unions were much stronger. Right. And so here, this is another way of interfering with the market, because of course, if you leave the market alone completely, under capitalism, it accentuates differences. But that restriction, um, you know, had the benefit of pushing up the bottom. And in a sense, it also pushes down the top, because if you're pushing up wages, you are cutting into profits, and mm -hmm. it's those profits that make the rich very rich. Right. The problem in America today is that the union movement is largely in the public sector rather than the private sector. And it's really, I think, in the, you know, if you had mass unionization across the private sector that you'd see the effects of inequality more starkly because, you know, firstly, there'd be profits to squeeze, but secondly, more people work in, in the private sector. So, you know, interesting things to look at are, you know, how successful 
will the uh, labor mobilization in Amazon be? Uh, right. You know, in other other areas like that. You know, how do you unionize workers in our new economy? Right, but but that is hopeful that you know by focusing not on you know squeezing the top so much as elevating everyone else through labor unions, through investment in education and. And other things, other ways to make the the general population more prosperous. I mean, for example, you talk about the German apprenticeship yeah. system. Yeah. Tell, tell me why you think that's an interesting example. So I think if you look all across continental Europe, one thing they have in common is well-paid workers in what you might think of as the middle of the distribution of skills, right? So in other words, you don't have to have a degree to make a decent living. And that, by the way, was the world we just spoke about with unionized workers in the 60s and 70s. 70s, right? They didn't have degrees. They made a good living. And the German model has been great at doing that because many students in Germany, over a third, are part of what's called the dual system, which is the, you know, from the age of around 14 onwards, they spend half of their days at companies learning skills and the other half back in school. You know, if you think about the kinds of companies we associate with high quality production, like Bosch and BMW, right? these are companies where workers get very, very good at incrementally improving and making these products. And the way in part they get there is having been apprentices since they were 14. So, you know, that that is a very, very different model to the model that predominates in the UK and in the US, which is one where you bifurcate the population into people with degrees and without degrees. And again, to the winners go the spoils. People may talk today about, is it worth going to college? But the college wage premium is still really high and hasn't declined that much over decades and decades and decades, even with a mass expansion of college. Right? So America has split into a group of you know, high-earning graduates and you know, less well-earning high school graduates. So no wonder there's a lot of resentment between the, between the two groups. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll let you get back to your barbecue and fireworks now. But remember, as you celebrate America's birthday, that we're still very much a work in progress. There's a lot we can all do as individuals and collectively to live up to our ideals. Ben will be back tomorrow to talk about the idea of solidarity, why it's such a powerful but elusive ideal. Also, a quick reminder that the Next Big Idea Club offers not just great podcasts, not just an amazing app, but also a good old-fashioned book club. We'll send you actual hardback books, the best in new nonfiction, as selected by our curators Susan Kane, Dan Pink, Adam Grant, and Malcolm Gladwell. For a special sign-up offer, go to nextbigideaclub.com and use promo code DAILY. Thanks for checking it out, and I'll see you tomorrow.